Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we usually showcase a 12-step recovery program, and by sharing lived experience, we hope that others can understand that recovery is a realistic hope and that shared experience saves lives. In today's special show, I'll be talking about recovery from post-traumatic stress disorder, commonly referred to as PTSD. I'd like to introduce Alex Gerrick to the show. Welcome to Living Free. G'day, Bill. Nice to be here, and, and uh, hi to all your viewers. Thank you. Uh, Alex is a PTSD sufferer, and he's also the CEO of Fearless. Is it Fearless Outreach or just Fearless? Uh, Fearless Outreach is the, um, is the technical name, yes, Bill? The CEO of Fearless Outreach, a charity that works with people living with the consequences of PTSD and also helps family members affected by it. Uh, Alex, I was wondering if we could start if, uh, by you giving us a, a bit of an overview of, of Fearless. Um, can you tell us a bit about how it started? Yeah, sure, Bill. Um, Fearless was started about seven years ago. The two founding members, one of them is Admiral Chris Barry, who is a former Chief of the Defence Force. Um, Chris was, uh, w- um, was in that role at the time during our deployment to Iraq um, and Afghanistan uh, after the 9-11 attacks, um, and also a, a, se- a former senior bureaucrat uh, and um, foreign affairs expert, Alan Bean. Uh, what happened, they got together uh, probably about six or seven years ago because both of them in their different roles had seen the impact um, that uh, the deployment of our ADF personnel had on, on their mental health and, and, and the impacts of PTSD. And they basically wanted to establish an organisation that would help people when they came back from the Middle East. But that eventually morphed into something a lot wider. And now we focus not only on PTSD in the armed forces, but throughout the Australian community. So what sort of services does Fearless provide? Yeah, look, we're not a service provider like Beyond Blue or Lifeline. We, we don't, uh, we're not psychologists or mental health specialists. What we are, we consider ourselves to be probably do three main roles. Uh, one is a, a strategic advocate for better services for PTSD sufferers. And um, we, uh, we do that through our lobbying through, through, through different means, through different organisations and government and the private sector. We also see ourselves as a connector with other organisations. You're probably aware, Bill, that there's a lot of organisations out there doing, dealing with PTSD. Um, there is no real connector between that. And you can find that someone's doing something in Queensland that may be being done in Victoria, but they, they don't know about each other. So Fearless plays a role in connecting with people. Uh, but most importantly, we, are, uh, we, we see ourselves as being a, a key communicator on PTSD with the, with the Australian community. Um, last year, we held the first of our, what we hope to be a series of national conversations on PTSD. Um, that was held in the Sunshine Coast. Uh, we won an award um, for that conference in Queensland as being the best cause-related conference of last year, and we're now up for a national award on that as well. So what, what we hope to do through these national conversations is, is raise awareness of PTSD through the community. We're obviously very closely linked into our social media outlets uh, to inform people about, up, about recent developments and so forth. But our, what we hope to do within the next 12 to 18 months is 
establish a national protocol for PTSD, which will help people um, in consultation with their doctor or mental health specialist to, to look at the different ways that they might be able to manage their PTSD through things such as diet and exercise and, and a whole range of things, which we'll no doubt talk about in a moment. So how does somebody become involved with Fearless? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. We, we don't have a member. We, we, we're looking at how, uh, because we do get a lot of, we, we get a lot of uh, queries and support on social media. We, we're looking at what the next step will be in terms of membership because people, we find we get contacted from people all around Australia who want to do something and want to help. And um, we, we, uh, we contact them when there's a specific project that we might be involved in, but there's no general membership at this point, but that hopefully will change over the next uh, 12 months or so. Really what we, we like to hear from people is to connect with us, particularly on social media. And then we, as it's been the case during this year, given the COVID crisis, we've spent a lot of time having conversations and getting feedback from the general population about their own experiences or about what they hope to see through the, the next few years around PTSD management in Australia. So I encourage people, if they want to engage in that conversation, to to connect with us on social media, uh, but but we will be looking at a, a, a membership model at some point in the future. Okay. So what about funding then? How do you get funded? Yeah, look, that's a good question. Uh, we, we um, all of us are volunteers. So that's the, the first point I make. And um, as I said, most of us on the board are at that stage of our lives when we, where we can do that. And, um, but we all come from different backgrounds and some of us, some of there's some well Chris Barry, obviously the chairperson, is a former chief of the defence force. Uh, we've got people from the police force. We've got people from different backgrounds. I'm um, my, my background, although I'm an army reservist, has been in politics and, and in government. Uh, so we've got different people who've got different skill sets. We we try to run um, our organisation um, as tightly as we can. We received uh, initial uh, money, uh, initial funding from uh, our main benefactor, um, uh, Roy, um, Roy Thompson, who is a philanthropist who lives in Queensland, closely associated with the setting up of the Thompson Institute in the University of the Sunshine Coast. So Roy has been extremely generous in supporting our cause, but obviously, um, you know, at a time of COVID where Funding needs to be directed in the right areas. We're happy where we are at the moment, but, but next year when we start to talk about our next national conversation, we'll, be, we'll do the usual thing that not-for-profit organisations do is you know, to go to some of the main, main, uh, main organisations for a little bit of funding. But we try to keep it as tight as possible because we, we are very targeted in what we do. So we only seek money when we go out to do something like a, a, a national conversation or another program like that. So can you tell us a bit more about who are the most likely people to be affected by PTSD based on Fearless's experience? Yeah, well, that's a really good question, Bill. And I go back to what I said before about when Chris and Alan first started the organisation, it was mainly due to their concern around ADF personnel. And, and I think if you ask the normal person in the street who they thought would be impacted by PTSD, uh, the normal response probably would be our, 
first responders and our ADF personnel because through the virtue of their their work, they are put into very stressful situations. And and I can't speak highly enough of of, of the uh, particularly our ADF um, personnel who who in some cases there were people who did up to seven, eight, nine, ten deployments during the during a fifteen year period. So. Um, we do we do expect a lot of our ADF personnel and also our first responders, but I think what's become very obvious now, there's over we we believe there's probably about two million people who are impacted by PTSD in Australia, and if you add on top of that, Bill, the family members or friends of those people who live with the consequences of that on a day-to-day basis, then we're talking a uh, you know we're talking about a fair a fair portion of our population. PTSD can impact on anyone, basically. Anyone who's had a traumatic event in their lives can be impacted by that. We underestimate, I think, in this country, the impact on people like our health workers, those who are suffering domestic abuse, those who have suffered sexual assault. All of these very traumatic events in your life can lead to PTSD. So I think we're scratching the surface and I think, but I think we're getting a better understanding of of who it impacts. So, my my very neat response to your question is basically anyone can suffer from it, and we're finding the consequences, particularly this year, where we've got had so many bad things happen, like bushfires and COVID. Uh, we I think seeing the consequences of that as well. Yeah. I understand that PTSD is the second most common mental health condition next to depression. Yeah. And that it also, as you mentioned, can have a profound effect on the individual and their family. Yeah. And based on, I guess, my experience, my dad was an alcoholic and um, growing up in an alcoholic home is pretty traumatic for a kid. Yeah. But a lot of people who come on the show talk about childhood trauma and also trauma related to drinking or drug use, uh, the situations they get in, in those. And so are you, are you finding that family members is becoming a, an increasing part, given that each, in, in an alcoholic situation, typically, an alcoholic affects five people. So the multiplier effect is really quite large. So are you seeing that? Yeah, definitely, Bill. And I, look, um, I've got a very close friend of mine um, and um, she was dealing with her partner having PTSD and develop PTSD herself from dealing with the, the impacts of that. And, and that's what we're concerned about, that, that because there's, a, I think, a general lack of understanding of what PTSD is, it manifests itself in so many different ways that it becomes a, a knock-on effect. And I, we see that in families all the time. And when we had our national conversation last year on the Sunshine Coast, we, we had a particular segment there that dealt with, with families. Um, and, the, and that was the principal outcome of those discussions where people were just saying that, you know, if you don't control it, it then becomes an issue. It becomes a wider issue day to day. We, and um, we see that all the time. And I think that's a great point that you make in particular around families that do have an alcohol issue in that family. Uh, that can cause so many stressful situations, ang- anxiety, uh, depression, a whole range of things for family members. And that's what we're worried about, in particular around COVID, because 
the impacts of people losing their jobs and, and those sorts of things obviously are going to have a wider impact on the family as well. So what has been the impact from your perspective then of, of COVID? What, what have you sort of seen coming out of, out of that in your organisation? Yeah, look, I, we, I get feedback quite regularly uh, from people. I think there's three factors there, Bill. I think the, the stress and anxiety of people um, losing their jobs, I think, is a, is a big one. And I, we were commenting before we started about a number of people uh, that I've spoken to who, who've, never, who've never had to go and get a line-up in a dull queue before. And to seek unemployment benefits and the impact that that's had on them. So I think that's one. I think definitely the other major concern has been around domestic violence. And again, some of that, and I was speaking only to a lady a couple of weeks ago who, 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 um, who recently left her husband. Um, and she was saying that what COVID had done was it kept him inside the house more it made them fight more and it made her be, you know, suffer more of the, of, the, um, of the tension that the family was facing through him hitting her all the time whenever something bad happened, like he didn't, you know, he wasn't successful in a job interview and he would hit her. So it, it's, that, it, it's those things that are really concerned to us because, as you probably know yourself, a lot of women in particular remain silent in domestic abuse situations and so we're very concerned about that aspect and I think there's just and the third one I think there's just a general I don't know I I I don't live in Melbourne and you do and you probably know better than I do but there seems to be just a general view about when is this all going to end and what does this mean for me in the future what does my future hold a lot of people are getting uh, one of the things that manifests around PTSD is anxiety and a lot of people are, you know, are quite rightly very anxious about their future and what this all means and what does a post-COVID world going to look like for them and for, the, for, for their friends and family. So I think those are the three main, main things. Uh, but around our region here in Canberra, where I live, and we had a, obviously a big issue around bushfires on the south coast, those people have had a triple whammy. Uh, and those are the ones that I'm really concerned about who had to experience the bushfires all the issues around trying to build their businesses again and then being hit by the by COVID. So there's a lot of people that I've got concerns for and uh, I don't think we're going to understand the true impact of this until COVID is over in some sense, whenever that may be. Yeah, and, and probably years, years down the track as well. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, well, listen, we might take a short break there. This song's dedicated to Red Max and her new short hair. And warning, uh, this song has some explicit content. I've already broken up with my boyfriend and cut off all my hair. Of it. 
Uh, that was Rails by Mum Friends, courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. This year, Alcoholics Anonymous is celebrating 75 years in Australia. Due to coronavirus, their 2020 National Convention will be a virtual experience held online from the 2nd to the 4th of October, 2020. For more details about the event, just search AA National Convention. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then you can either head to your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free Show and how you can contact us. Today I'm talking with Alex Gerrick. He's the CEO of Fearless and we're talking about the effects and recovery from post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. So Alex, you've personally experienced PTSD through multiple traumas. Yep. So would you like to sort of tell us a bit about when it first started? I understand it was in childhood. Yeah, look, it's um, mine's, um, I'll I, I preamb- make a preamble there by saying that all of us have got our own stories and um, not one story is not more important than the other. And I, I think we've got certainly on the board of Fearless, we've got a lot of different people with a lot with different experiences. And I think that's the beauty about bringing people together in an organisation like Fearless, we can learn from each other. But no, look, my my situation probably started from childhood. I was um, born in Australia, although my, um, my parents came from the, the former Yugoslavia at the end of the Second World War. I was the youngest of four children, a, a huge gap between me and the rest of the siblings. So I think you can work out from that that I perhaps was a mistake um, in, the, in, the, uh, in, in the whole scheme of things. But I had an incredibly traumatic time before I even reached the age of 10. Without going into any particular order, I, I was shot while I was playing in my front yard one day. Someone, we, we never found out who it was. The police could never really get to the bottom of it but someone had had taken a pot shot at me with a 22 rifle the bullet went through my elbow there was another shot that was fired afterwards so i don't think it was an accident it was obviously someone someone was deliberately trying to make a point if it gone another you know inch inch to the right i wouldn't be here talking to you no doubt so that was uh pretty uh, that was probably the first thing i almost then probably about three months after that, I almost drowned. And um, I was very lucky that my father, who couldn't find me, um, suddenly found me at the bottom of the swimming pool and was able to get me up just in time. So I, I lived with that. I had an aversion to water, as you could probably imagine, for, for the next uh, few months, Bill. But then I also um, had a, a very rare form of hernia that if it had perforated, and this happened to me twice, if it had perforated, it, I would have um, would have no doubt died through septicemia or something like that. Um, I had to undergo two operations before I was nine years old. There was another incident around um, uh, an inappropriate incident that happened to me as well, which I don't like to talk about that often, but it involved uh, an older person. And that sort of just was the icing that, you know, that hit the cake. So those were the things that happened to me before I was 10 years old. But I guess I didn't really think about it too much until I got into my teenage years and I just started to realise that even though I was you know a good sportsman I was good academically 
um, I had a, a good range of friends, I started to realise that there was something different for me from the rest of the, the people around me. They just seemed so much happier and settled than I was. And I couldn't figure out why. And of course, back in those days, I grew up, as I said, in the in the late 70s. You you wouldn't have heard about PTSD or trauma or anything like that then. Get over it, yeah. Yeah, that's right. You And, and my dad had very, you know, being a, you know, he, he, he wasn't the greatest father in the world, but he had a very firm view about what a man should be. And that was, he didn't complain, he didn't show any emotion, he didn't let other people get the better of you. If, if something was wrong with you, you just shut up, you just shut up as the best you could and get on with life. And, and that was the and that was simply the, the way that I went above my life. So yeah, so that that was the the first um, bit of it, I guess I got into my early 20s and um, I, I, it started to, all this weird stuff was happening in my head and I started to turn to alcohol. And I wasn't an alcoholic or anything, but I was a binge drinker. And because of that, I couldn't, it stopped me from doing the things that I should have been doing at that time, like finishing my academic studies and and, you know, doing the normal things that a normal male would do around about that time. And um, I just knew that there was something wrong, but I, I didn't understand what it was. And I, I think what I got married and and tried to get my life together. But after I divorced after four years, I started to think more about these things. I went overseas in 1995 and um, I met someone from the former Yugoslavia, she was a, a young girl. And she told me her own traumatic story about what had happened to her. You recall, Bill, that during that time, there was a war around the breakup of Yugoslavia. There was a lot of atrocities committed against women in particular, and she was one of them. For some reason, her story triggered something in my mind. And I went downhill rapidly over the next three or four years. But because of, because of the fact that I was you know, starting a, a promising career in the in the bureaucracy. I was an army reservist. I didn't want to tell anyone what was happening to me. So I kept these things very close to my chest. And again, I was then posted to the Philippines in 2000, 2001. Whole range of things happened to me there, including getting held, detained at gunpoint during a military coup, which was quite traumatic in itself. I was in a village trying to help a young family get their little girl to a hospital where before when she died pretty much right in front of me so all of these things took their toll and when i got back to australia and my career started to really um, begin to rise i decided that if i showed any of these things that i was experiencing and i was experiencing bad nightmares i was experiencing shaking at times when I would think about these things, that if I'd showed these side effects to people, it would impact on my career. And so pretty much for the next 15, 16 years, I became um, probably the world's greatest actor. I would go to work every day, pretend that there was nothing wrong with me. And then I'd go home at night and about one, two, three o'clock in the morning, I would become this gibbering mess. And I did this virtually every day for 15 years. And it was only probably about four years ago when something happened at work, everything started to come out. I, I, 
I uh, often say it's like a leaky boat. You spend all your life trying to plug the holes and one day you just can't plug it any longer and the boat sinks and you sink with it. And that's what happened to me four years ago. And as a result, I almost committed suicide um, because the depression and the anxiety got so much for me that I almost committed suicide. But after I was able to um, get a really good uh, therapist, we worked you know, pretty closely together for the next year and I was able to come out of that really well. So that was, that's probably my story in a very quick nutshell. Nutshell. I am writing a book about this in particular in a, to help men uh, in particular, but happy to explore some of those issues in greater de- detail if you like. Yeah, okay. I have a particular interest in, in the impact on families and relationships. Um, so how, how did your PTSD impact your relationships with others? Yeah, that's a really good, really good point. In my book, I talk about a number of people that I met while overseas, probably about 20 years ago. And these were just people that I met in my travels who I got to know for about a week. And they were able to somehow, all of them that I got to know, were able to highlight something that they were concerned about me in terms of my mental health. And But when I got back to Australia, if you asked any of my friends, if you asked, even if you asked my, my wife now, did they think there was anything wrong with me? Most of them would have said no. And the reason is, is I put so much effort into hiding it from people uh, that when it finally all burst out into the open about four years ago, people just couldn't believe that this was what I was suffering for all that 20 years. And... I think that there's a really, uh, the issue around relationships is a real big theme in my book, Bill, because it's those relationships that can make or break you in PTSD. Particularly, you know, there were people that had highlighted things that I could have acted upon, but I didn't. And in in the long term, they impacted on my relationships downstream, whether if, whether if I had responded sooner to them some of those relationships wouldn't have been impacted by that and and certainly when you're doing things when you're interacting with people whether it be your staff members or your friends and you do something that's completely out of whack and they don't understand why it's very difficult for them to move forward with that and that's why I'm a great believer of having to be open with your friends and family about your condition it's, there's no point holding it in because they won't understand you and you won't understand how you interact with them either. Uh, often people are a bit scared about making it worse. They don't want to, they don't want to upset you, but you need, you need somebody to give you a reality check. Yeah. So did you say you remarried? Yeah, I remarried. I, I remarried again in, in, in 2005. So we've been together now for 15 years which has been a wonderful, it's been a wonderful relationship. Like any couple, you have your issues. But I think, I think the, the, the beauty about it now is that uh, she understands, she, she's not, my wife didn't know a lot about PTSD. And I think over the work over the last three or four years that I've done through Fearless and other, and other things, um, she's become a lot more aware of it. So she, she now understands occasionally if I, you know, if I get a little bit down or if I'm a little bit anxious, she knows what to do now because she's become more aware of it. And I think that's critical in, 
any um, any resolution around or any management around PTSD is working that through with your close family members. So they understand what they need to do as well and, and how to respond when you might have an issue. So that's been a real positive part out of my story. Yeah, um, that, yeah, I guess my experience too is that, um, you know, with, with alcoholism or drug addiction or gambling or any of those things that you can't change the person yeah. who's affected. So you just have to, you have to adjust and to, to respect the fact that they, they're sick. Yeah. And, and I think to a large degree, it is a mental, it is a mental illness issue. Yeah. And really it's being supportive of them to get help for themselves. I think that's the crucial thing. I think so. There's um, I, 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 listen, I watched a show not so long ago um, on, um, on SBS around PTSD and one person and um, one of the, the clinicians on that show said something on the lines of that, you're never the same person when you experience a traumatic event and you get PTSD, you're never the same person that you were before then. No. And, but in my instance, my first traumatic event was when I was five. So I can't remember what I was like before I was five. All I've ever known is this type of life. So I never really had a good idea about what was normal and what wasn't. So there were times when particularly I worked um, on the hill, uh, I'm sorry, in Parliament House for, for about two and a half years and mainly for Greg Combe. And I, I was responsible for, for, in his office for cleaning up the home insulation program, which in itself was a very traumatic experience for a lot of people, particularly those four very um, unfortunate families who, who lost their loved, loved, beloved sons in that, in that process. And I remember, you know, the stress at times was so unbearable. I would go home and, and as I said, I'd be there at one, two, three o'clock in the morning, feeling anxious uh, about everything, thinking that this was normal, but it wasn't normal because all it was was manifesting my the problems that I was already experiencing. And so, look, I, I think that that's the, the key issue. You've got to understand yourself. Uh, when you've got something like this, you've got to understand what's causing it and what you have to do to maintain a normal life. And, and that was what I was able to do with the support of my friends and family and also a very good therapist. So did you turn to back to alcohol at any point? No, not really, Bill. Um, when I was working in politics, it was one of those places which is very conducive to, to drinking, uh, particularly, at, you know, particularly if you recall the, the, mad, the whole madness of the Rudd-Gillard era, you know, it was going to work someday. You didn't know whether you were going to have a job by the end of the day, you know, particularly, um, particularly when, when Julia was Prime Minister. So... It was, um, you know, it was a very stressful thing. Uh, I would occasionally have a, a, a binge drink occasionally with people. But over time, I lost, I lost all interest um, in alcohol and the taste of it. And um, even now, I probably, probably have one glass of wine a month. That's probably the, the extent of it. I think my, my biggest thing for me was, you know, what was the... What, what was the drug of choice, I guess, when I was experiencing these things? I think for me, it was definitely stimulants like coffee. I used to drink 10, 12 cups of coffee a day. 
And that's probably why I was still awake at two, three o'clock in the morning. But it was those sorts of things. It was an unhealthy lifestyle about, it was more around drinking coffee and eating fast food. I mean, I, I you know, I would rarely sit down for a, a, a proper meal. I always was in a rush. I always felt like if I had to cook myself a, a meal, I was wasting an hour or an hour and a half of my life. So it, it more manifested on those things, Bill, rather than alcohol, which is interesting because some a lot of PTSD people do turn to alcohol and that's um, as, a, a, as a soothing situation. So no, I, I personally didn't though. What did you find most helpful in your therapies? Yeah, look, I, there, were, there were two things, I guess. One of the critical things I think about, and we'll t- perhaps if we get a little time to talk about it in a moment, you've got to get the right person. 20 years ago, before I went to the Philippines, actually, I, I went to see a couple of psychologists and they didn't really help me at all because they did, really didn't understand the situation and they didn't really understand me. What was the beauty of the therapist that I, that I had here in Canberra was that he got me straight away. And what he said to me, he was very much focused about this is what we're going to do together to help you move forward. But what he did, he allowed me to look into my own past and, and he gave me the opportunity and the time to do that. So I, I, I was able to sit down while, while working with him about what my future life was like. I was able to delve into my past to, to figure out what were the things that were causing this. And obviously the things that I just discussed with you all manifested itself in different ways. But what he was very good at doing was, okay, if you're going to get anxious about these things and you're feeling bad, um, he was very good at giving me some techniques to do about making myself feel better about myself. And he he made me develop a, a small story about myself, that this is what this is who Alex Garrick is. He's this, he's this, he's this, he's this. And whenever I had doubts about it, whenever I felt anxious, he would get me to recite this thing about myself. And it made me so feel automatically good that, look, despite all these things that I've been dealing with, I was still able to achieve a lot in my life and I was still able to, I still had good relationships with people. So he made me focus on that. He also gave me a lot of tips around breathing. I'm a great believer, Bill, in calming yourself down through breathing uh, and through breathing techniques. And, and look, everyone's different. And uh, we'll talk again, we'll talk about that in a moment, but everyone's different around how they relax themselves. Breathing to me was a big component. It's that, you know, taking those deep breaths, linking that with something good in your mind while you're doing it. So if I would get, to give you an example, if I would get a little bit anxious about what happened to me in the Philippines, I would, um, you know, go into my deep breathing, but think about the positive things that happened to me in the Philippines. And that made me feel a lot better. So it was very big around reinforcing the good things about myself, but also some really good techniques like breathing and so forth. So I just found that a really good way of coming to terms with things. And, um, and, and I don't believe that you're ever cured from PTSD. Um, some people believe you can be. I personally think you can't. But it, you, you need to develop those processes that help you manage it from a day-to-day basis. Okay, awesome. We might take another short break there.
thing that could happen And it happened to me Not the first time that I've been here It just happened to be you Looking to move, taking a leap If I'm going to hell This is heaven to me Sent your invitation Didn't think you'd come Here's a demonstration Best thing that could happen and it happened to you. Not the last time that you'll be here. And it happened to be now. Backing it up, motion to leave. Motion to leave. If I'm going to hell, this is heaven to me. Don't think, just dance. Stop checking the time. Young heart, run free. Start losing your mind. Situation. I think I'm gonna call to your destination. Oh, 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 oh. Easy love. Love's not hard from the start. From the start. When fear things come from the heart. From the heart. Take our cue from the music, from the groove. Me and you. Let's get high together Easy Love by Brendan McLean, courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. I really am not understanding why people aren't seeing the fact that prisons are an integral part of a public health response to a pandemic. Like you, I'm really concerned about whether the data is being released very honestly about illnesses within prison. I have suspicions it's not, but really we need very strong leadership in this country that actually cares about people inside, our most vulnerable populations inside. That's what we need and that's not what we're getting right now. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377.
this is the Living Free Show on 3CR Digital and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Today I'm talking with Alex Garrick. He's the CEO of Fearless and we're talking about the effects of and recovering from post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. So Alex, we've talked about you know the organisation, talked about your experience with PTSD. So I thought we'd talk a bit about the therapies and the treatment options for for PTSD. Um, So I understand that there's very variable uh, severity of PTSD and that people really need to get the appropriate treatment. So, you know, what's the the mechanism for people seeking treatment? Yeah, look, it's a very good question, Bill, and and we reinforce this whenever we can. If you think you have an issue around PTSD, then the first thing you should do is consult with your doctor or a mental health specialist. And I think there's a real danger sometimes that people don't want to do that for whatever reasons. And that's, and certainly that was in my case, I felt as soon as I did that, that that would be legitimizing something I didn't want anybody else to know about. But I think that's the, that's the, the, the important first step is to, is to do that. And as an aside to that, if you're experiencing a really bad moment, then please pick up the phone to Lifeline or Beyond Blue. They can help you to, to go through that, that process if you're feeling really distressed by your condition. So I think those are the first two things that I, I would comment on. I really do think though, it's, um, it's very important to get, if you're going to a mental health um, specialist, it's very important to get a person that is the right fit for you, because if you don't, it can have a really devastating impact about how you then manage that process moving forward. And only you can tell that. It has to be someone that obviously you feel comfortable with, um, that's gonna understand your particular situation and that someone's gonna be sympathetic, but also very direct about how the steps that you need to take moving forward. So I think those are are the important first steps to, to make is to consult with a medical professional. Yeah, yeah, I think I think the respect between patient and therapist is very important both ways. Yeah. Because it's um, a lot of people that I talk to on this show have been to, you know, many, many therapists, done many um, withdrawal recovery things, but they're never honest. And so the therapist is sort of useless and is only... Um, I guess, aiding and abetting their, yeah. their process because they, they're not being honest. So how important, how important is it for people to be honest you know, if, if they want recovery? Oh, look, 100%, 100%. And look, I, I, I was critical um, before about two of the psychologists that I went to 20, 25 years ago. But when I look back at it, a lot of that was my fault as well. I wasn't completely honest about some things. And it's very difficult for them to to try to unlock what's happening in your mind if you're if you're not being honest with, with them and you're not being honest with yourself. So yeah, look, that 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 is very very important, and that's why again, it's important to get someone that you're comfortable with because I found that there's no hard or fast rule. And if you talk to some of the people I know who are PTSD sufferers, they'll say the th- same thing. Um, there wasn't one. Uh, there was no hard or fast rule about who was a good therapist or who wasn't. It was just 
walking into that room and clicking with someone and, and understanding that that person was going to listen to them and, uh, and take them seriously. I think I hear horror stories like you just said, Bill, about people going from one person to the next person to the next person. I really feel sorry for those people. And I've met some of them who said that we just can't find the right person. But look, it's very important that you do because having someone that you can trust is the biggest, biggest uh, way of moving forward, uh, particularly with someone who who needs to, you know, particularly with someone who needs to understand you better. Trust is the only thing that can can do that. Yeah, the other one is talking, you know, sort of counselling and, and therapy is about trying to get your life into perspective as well. Yeah. So did that help you to try and understand what had happened and, and, and the effect? Yeah, very much so. As I said, um, it, it, it was good. Um, for me, what worked for me was, is, as I said, he left me on, on to my own devices a little bit to work out what was what had happened in the past, and I was really grateful about that because what I what was different now than from before that I knew that if I had come if I hit a stumbling block in that process I could go back to him and he could help me, uh, and that's what was different about it. So yeah, look, I was able to to bring things into perspective by having you know, a really detailed look about some of the things that happened and how it impacted me and what are the things I did right or wrong. And then if I had an issue, I would go back to him. And, um, and so that was, that's what I found worked, worked really well for me. And, and in fact, probably one of, if I remember correctly, one of my last consultations that I had with him, I only really brought up the Philippines, which was a really, the Philippines was, uh, my, my time in the Philippines was probably the point that really changed my life. But I only really brought up the Philippines with him probably in my second or third last consultation. It was like I, I was working in stages to get to that point. And then I got to that point and I said, hey, Doc, um, these are the things that happened to me in the Philippines and I still think about that now. What do you reckon? Uh, and so I, I think it's very important to have that perspective about yourself and have a, an honest conversation with yourself before you have an honest conversation with your therapist. Yeah, yeah, but it requires too. You you've got to have the trigger to to get you to thinking that way. You can't do it. You can't self will can't overcome self will. You can't you can't stop yourself thinking your first thought. Exactly, and 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 I, and as I said, what I found good about it, even though you know, as I said, he was very focused about my future, and I was focusing on my past. But I always knew that if I if I hit a dead end he'd be able to tell me something to where to, get, to, where to look for that next turn. So, um, yeah, look, I think it's, uh, it's important that, as we just said before, it's important that therapy is a two-way street. So I understand the other one is chemical, you know, having yep. drugs. So are there sort of new treatments and things coming out that might help? There's things happening all the time in this space, and, and we talked about this a lot at our national conversation last year. There, some doctors will, will prescribe drugs. There are new techniques now that have been looked at around um, re-imaging the brain, because um, PTSD is, a, is an injury to your brain in effect, in effect. So there's new technologies now that, are, that I've um, visited, for example, in Brisbane, with, an, with a particular organisation that looks at how you can repair those, those stems in your brain. 
that have been damaged. So there's a whole range of things that have been looked at. Again, it's up to the doctor to find the best methodology for you. There's a, a wonderful person on our board who went down that drug route initially, but she found that it didn't work for her. And so she looked at alternative measures around things such as yoga, exercise, diet, and those sorts of things. So it's really about, again, consulting with your doctor or, or mental health a mental health specialist and finding what's the best thing for you. Some people um, I know who have gone down the drug route have said to me if they had their time again, they wouldn't do that. Um, some people have said to me, I wish we had taken drugs earlier because it helps me. So the, I, I'm very reluctant to, to say to people what's right or what's wrong because I'm not a medical practitioner, but it, it, there, there are a number of different options that people can explore with their doctor uh, around some of these things. So we now know that PTSD reveals itself often a long time after the trauma or the event. So is there any sort of indication of how long it takes or what it takes to make that connection where people can actually understand it? Uh, look, it, it, that, from my understanding, that time varies. Uh, and again, this was spoken about a bit last year. That time varies. I mean, um, people can have a reaction straight away or people can, you know, there can be a reaction 10 or 15 years later when, when a, a particular trigger impacts on you. In my case, there were several different triggers in my life that caused uh, a real issue with me. And one, as I said, was this discussion I had about this girl and what had happened to her uh, when she was raped. And that sort of really impacted on me. And then as a result of that, I would have, I virtually had years upon years of the same nightmare involving that story. And I just, you know, I just couldn't get rid of that nightmare. So that was that. But there were other triggers as well. I mean, what sort of precipitated the, the, the final collapse that I had in 2016 was something very, very, very minor. I was on, I was on a, I had left at the airport in Tokyo, in my, in my hotel in Tokyo to go to the airport to catch a flight to London. And I left my charger for my iPhone in my room. And um, this just created the biggest drama in my life. I virtually destroyed half of um, uh, Narita Airport in my rage that I'd left this thing in my room, which was only minor. I could have bought another one when I landed in London. So there are different triggers that impact on you. My concern is particularly with people like veterans, for example, they go through this quite a bit. There are, there are a number of triggers when they get back from an area of operation. Unfortunately, some of them live alone. Some of them are living with people that may not understand PTSD all that well. And it just builds up and builds up and builds up until they have a really bad episode. So, look, it varies with different people, but you've got to understand the, the symptoms of that. And when, you, when something like that does happen, you obviously need to go and seek medical assistance straight away. So it sounds like there's an opportunity for a bit of community education as well. Uh, it's not just the sufferer, but the people who observe them. So does Fearless, yeah, does Fearless do that? We hope to do it in, in, to continue the national conversations. We got our next one scheduled next year, and that theme will be around the recovery side from both COVID and um, and bushfires and, and and some of the experiences that people have have suffered from from that and how we can move on from that. We're looking at 
focusing. Uh, we've got a in the uh, Sunshine Coast where we did our last, where we did our first um, national conversation. They've got a really good model there within the Sunshine Coast about how the community interacts with the local health organisations in, in managing PTSD. And what, what I'm working on at the moment is developing a wider community-based model for PTSD management. That is how we bring the community together to, number one, understand PTSD more effectively, but how we then manage the resources of a community to, to band together and to help people most at need. And that is, you know, really um, connecting public servants and health professionals and business people to look at ways of bringing that community together and, and developing the appropriate resources. So that's one way of doing it. We, as I said, we, we want to continue having conversations with people over our social media platforms. But the principal thing that we want to do is develop this protocol. And what we, we would envisage what the protocol would be, would be a final repository of information relating to everything that you ever wanted to know about PTSD, but were too scared to ask. Have an organisation that will update that, will have the experts to update that consistently. So that information is available to all people in Australia. And that might help them as well. You talked about before about you know, managing situations that might occur from time to time. What we envisage would be in that protocol would be information around diet, information around exercise, information around, say, animal-assisted therapy, which I think is a really growing... I'm also on the board of Animal Therapies Limited Australia, who um, is, the, is the industry lead for animal-assisted therapy, and I think that's a a really burgeoning resource that we can use in the future. So the protocol would be providing information around those things. Again, always in consultation with your doctor, but we would hope that that would then really provide consistent information for Australia. Because Bill, I think the biggest problem that we face in PTSD is that despite all the, the great intentions from governments and, and other organisations, the way that we're managing PTSD at the moment nationally is fractured, uh, and we, we've got to bring some of those pieces together. Yeah, agreed. Okay, well, listen, I think we're just about at the end. So is there anything else you'd like to, to add? No, that's all good. Thank you for the opportunity. And can I just reinforce to, to your listeners that if you think that you do have an issue, again, consult with your doctor, but also try to find out as much as you can um, about PTSD. On our website at fearless.org.au, you'll find different avenues of information that you might find useful to you. But please take action because it's important, as I found out, the longer you delay it, the more it, it can impact on other people and I think and as much and as well as yourself. And I think it's important that you try to to do something about it as quickly as you can so that you not only you can live a fulfilling life, but those around you can as well. Yeah, it's, um, it's important to ensure that you address the problem so it doesn't become someone else's problem. Exactly. Yeah. And that could, and, and that's not, that's not only around your friendships and relationships. It can be also about your work colleagues as well. I mean, that that's an important factor to, to understand um, a person that brings his or her PTSD into the workplace does have implications for other people, whether they work for you, your colleagues, those above you, et cetera. So it's important to, to think about that as well. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, that's about all we've got time for today. Uh, so I'd like to thank Alex Garrick, for, uh, the CEO of Fearless, uh, for talking about recovering from PTSD. Thanks again, Alex. No, my pleasure, Bill, and all the best to all of your listeners. Thank you. If you'd like to find out more about Fearless, then you can phone them on 1300 375 377, or you can go online at fearless.org.au. Uh, I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll feature members from Alan and Family Groups and we'll be talking about the family disease of alcoholism. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned now for Alternative. Tune in to Uprise Radio every first and third Wednesday of the month at 5.30pm on 3CR. With Jackson and James, we're bringing you the in-depth analysis of what's happening in the world all in just 30 minutes. You can listen live to air or you can find us on demand. 3cr.org.au. Stay tuned.